Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This week is the final week of our mini-series on the church. Over the past two weeks, we have been learning about the church. We first learned about what we call the prospective church. It's often uh, termed in theological circles as the universal church. We've defined that as the, the assembly made up of every believer in every age and in every language and nation. Now, the moment you believed on Jesus Christ by grace through faith, Ephesians tells us, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The moment you believed on Jesus Christ and you accepted Him as your Savior and the Holy Spirit indwelled you, you became a member of this body, which we term the prospective church, and which will one day stand in heaven, redeemed by the Lamb of God. The head of the prospective church, as we recall from two weeks ago, is Christ. He is the head of the church. The structure of the prospective church is Christ as the vine, you as the branches. Christ as the shepherd, you as the sheep. There's no man that stands between you and God. There's no organization that stands between you and God. Salvation is a direct link, a direct relationship between you and God. You can go directly to God with your prayers. You can go directly to God with your needs. And you can have that personal relationship directly with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. And then we said that the fellowship of the prospective church was a fellowship surrounded, that surrounded persecution and hope. That the prospective church was a persecuted church. A church where Jesus Christ said, Surely in this world you shall have persecution. A church that Jesus Christ said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. But then it's also a fellowship of hope. Because every believer in every age and every point of this globe has the same hope, and that's the hope of eternal salvation. The hope of standing before the presence of God one day. The hope of the kingdom. The hope of the inheritance. The hope of the adoption of sons. The hope of redemption, of justification, of salvation through Christ. Well, then last week we talked about the local church. We defined the local church as the local application of the larger perspective church. It's made up of people, all of them believers, of similar culture and language, and it's here, it exists for the direct purpose of growing the kingdom of God in a localized area. The head of the local church, just as the head of the perspective church, is Jesus Christ. He is the head of this church, Legacy Baptist Church. He is the head of every local church, Jesus Christ. The structure of the local church, now we did mention, was a little bit different. Whereas the prospective church, it is you and God. The local church has an extra layer, as it were. It says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus Christ, excuse me, Ephesians 2, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, that he's the cornerstone of the building. Then the apostles and prophets, the scriptures, the word of God is the foundation that is consistent with the chief cornerstone, that reflects the chief cornerstone. And then you had the evangelist and the pastor-teacher 
which are intended to help the church be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. We just quoted that together. And so the local church has ministers, the evangelist, the one who sends forth the good news. We would call them today evangelists or missionaries. And the local church has pastor, elder, bishop. Same office. We found that from 1 Peter uh, last time. And this pastor teacher is meant to shepherd the flock, is meant to guide the flock, and is meant to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. And then we talked about the fellowship of the local church. And we said that the fellowship of the local church revolved around three things. And these were presented in Ephesians chapter 4. Fellowship of the local church, personal growth in Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. Then the work of the ministry, evangelism. And then finally, edifying one another, fellowship. Discipleship, evangelism, and fellowship are those three pillars upon which, or three things that the the local church is intended to do. That's why we're here. That's why the pastor and the uh, evangelist are here. It's so that we can take the word of God and give it to you, and you can take the word of God and you can disciple yourself and others. You can evangelize the lost, and you can fellowship one with another and edify one another in love. It was not more than two months ago in an evening service that I preached on Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. It was for a Lord's Supper emphasis service, and as I did so, I taught, as we were reflecting from the Scriptures, that um, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, the point of the author in Hebrews is attempting to make is that whereas a priest every year on the Tenth day of the seventh month, for those of us that are in Sunday school, you know which month that is. On the tenth day of the seventh month of every Hebrew religious year, there would be a day called the Day of Atonement. And on that day every year, the priest would go into the Holiest of Holies and he would make an atonement for the people. There was only one day a year that the priest would enter into the Holiest of Holies, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And he would sprinkle the mercy seat with blood, and he would change his garments before going in, and he would offer that sacrifice and the people's sins would be atoned. The author of Hebrews was attempting to contrast that with what we have today through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all, one-time offering that was sufficient to cover the sins of every man, past, present, and future. So because Jesus Christ died upon the cross, all the sins of men past, all of your sins past, all of your sins present, and all of your sins future have been paid for. And of course, the author is anticipating that every person that had been reading that has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and therefore had the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their own lives. And we would recognize that this is a personal decision for everyone in this room. And that if you have not ever come to the point where you yourself have made that personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, recognizing that you're a sinner, that because of your sin you're on the way to, your way to hell, then that's a decision that you need to make. And Hebrews 10 does not apply to you until you do. But today, we are going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. This once-for-all sacrifice forms the basis upon which the Word of God is established. Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, the cornerstone. And the Word of God forms the foundation upon which the church is built. 
Well, in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, we're going to see the implications of Christ's sacrifice and the implications of this new life in Christ. And the implications of this new life in Christ should touch every aspect of my life and every aspect of your life. And that is what the author of Hebrews is attempting to reflect through verses 19 through 25. And so this morning, we're going to look at three exhortations. Three exhortations from Hebrews 10 regarding the believer's expectations based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what does God expect of us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us? Three things this morning. Look with me beginning in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first exhortation, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because we have access directly to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, because we don't need to go through a man or through uh, uh, bulls or sacrifices on altars, because we can go directly to God now, he says the first thing that we ought to do, the first exhortation is to draw near. We are called, because of our salvation, to draw near to God. There are four characteristics that Paul gives here in Hebrews chapter 10 as to how it is that we are to draw near to God. Now remember, this is for believers. This is not for unbelievers. Notice he says here, let us draw near, verse 22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The first thing Paul says is draw near with a true heart, with a sincere heart. That's what the word in the Greek That original word means true, sincere, something that is genuine or something that is real. And so one of the characteristics of drawing near to God as we have been cleansed by Jesus Christ, as we draw near to him in this life, the first thing that that he exhorts us to do is to do so with a heart that is sincere, with a heart that is genuine, with a heart, that part of our body that represents our will, that part of our body that represents our emotion, our mind, our volition, our will, that is sincere in its desire and determined in its purpose. I reflected that in the prayer that I made this morning, that it was my prayer that every single person sitting in the seat here today, including this person standing behind the pulpit, would have come into this church with a heart of sincerity, with a heart that is true. That's what Paul is saying here. Draw near to God with a true heart, with a sincere heart, with a heart that is not double-minded, a heart that doesn't, it's not a heart that says, well, okay, I guess I've got to do this. It's a sincere heart. Then he says, secondly, in full assurance of faith. Not just a sincere heart, but a confident heart. Not just a sincere heart, but a confident heart. Paul exhorts us that our heart be sincere, but then compelled through confidence in our worship. You see, this is what the finished work of Jesus Christ gives us. There are many people in this world that have no confidence in their salvation. They have no confidence in their relationship with God. Sometimes this is because they believe that they have to do works to get themselves to heaven. And so if they don't do the right works, then they won't get to heaven. There's no confidence there because if you slip up one day, then you're no longer on your way to heaven. 
Some people believe that they have to do particular things to get themselves to heaven. Some people believe that they have to attend church or be good or, or feed the poor or give a certain amount and these things are the contingencies upon which they get to heaven. Some people feel as though you can never know, regardless of what you do, that God chooses who will and who won't and it's just, if He chose you, that's great. If He didn't choose you, you're out of luck. But see, Hebrews says that the finished work of Jesus Christ ought to give us full assurance of faith. Ought to give us complete confidence. You say, well, pastor, I don't have that confidence. You can have that confidence. If you don't have that confidence, the Word of God can give you that confidence. I encourage you to see me after the service and I can show you how you can have that confidence in Christ. And so we draw near to God with a true heart, a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, a confident heart. Number three, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We've seen a sincere heart. We've seen a confident heart. This is a clean heart. This is a clean heart. We come before God with a clean heart. Now, this would have been an illusion, an example, an illustration very familiar to these Hebrews. He's writing to Hebrews here. That's why the epistle is named Hebrews. He's writing to the Jewish people. And within their culture, they knew well of the sacrificial system. And I even alluded it to you already this morning. The sprinkling of blood was a very common symbolic gesture of consecration and cleansing in the Old Testament. When the people ratified, when the people entered into the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 24, verse 8, God said, take the blood of the calf and sprinkle it upon the people. And as the blood was sprinkled upon the people in Exodus 24, verse 8, God saw that as the means by which they entered with Him into the covenant. Every year on the Day of Atonement, as we've already mentioned, the priest would sprinkle the mercy seat in the Holiest of Holies with blood. It was a very important part of the Day of Atonement exercises because it symbolized the consecration, the cleansing, because we know from the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Paul's third exhortation for us, you come with a sincere heart, you come with a confident heart, but you know, you also need to come with a clean heart, a conscience that is void of offense before God and man. We draw near to God knowing that our hearts are cleansed from our sin. For we know that 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whose forgiveness do we need? God's forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to give it. One more characteristic of drawing near that we see from verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Clean heart, clean body. In the same vein as the sprinkling of blood is symbolic of the conscience that is clean before God, the priest would also come into the presence of God having washed his body and his garments, clean garments, a clean body. In much the same way, what Paul is telling us is that we need to come free of sin in our conscience, but also 
free of sin in our bodies. That we need to have clean hearts and clean minds and clean bodies as we draw near unto God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. Excuse me, 1 Peter 3. I want to um, very quickly highlight the fact that when he says that we need to come with a clean heart and a clean body, a conscience that is sprinkled, hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, he is not explicitly speaking of water baptism here. In 1 Peter 3, look with me in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, a- a- wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And notice what he says here. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Paul makes it very clear there that the baptism with which we are saved is not a physical water baptism, but the answer of a good conscience before God is the cleansing of Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is very important to recognize here is in the days of Noah, it was not the water that saved Noah, was it? He was saved from the water by the boat. And so we can't parallel water saving Noah with physical water saving us because it wasn't the water that saved Noah. It was the boat that saved Noah from the water. And so it's not talking about physical water baptism. It's talking about the answer of our conscience before God. Let me give you an illustration to put all this together. My wife and I are married. Can you believe that? My wife and I are married. As such, it is my desire that we are unified in mind and in action. I should hope that every married man in this room has the desire to unify with his wife in mind and in action. Now, I do this by drawing near to my wife, and she does this on my behalf by drawing near unto me. As we draw near to each other, we will become alike. We will become unified, and therefore we will be able to live as one and act as one. As I draw near to my wife, there are some things I ought to do and some things that I probably shouldn't ought to do. One of the things that's very important is that I draw near unto her with a true heart, with a sincere heart. You know, a heart that's not sincere is going to be, very, is going to be immediately noticed. Imagine I got done with work one day and I come over to my wife and I say, Hi, how are you? And she says, oh, it's good to see you home. I'm, and she turns to tell me how her day was. I asked her, how was she doing? And I'm already on the couch reading the newspaper. I asked her how her day was. I asked her how she was, but I didn't stick around for the answer. There was no sincerity in the question. I was just doing my thing. And later on, she's washing the dishes. And I say, 
hey, do you need any help with those dishes? And she says, oh, wow, that would be wonderful. She looks around to tell me she'd like help with the dishes and I'm already gone. I'm in front of the television. I'm munching on my potato chips on the couch. I had no intention to help her, but I did ask the question, what a good husband I am. And then I go up to her a week later and I say, hey, we've got a vacation coming up in a week. Where do you want to go for vacation? And she sits and she thinks about it and she comes up to me a little later and she says, you know, I was thinking about your question and I've got a few ideas here. And then she sees that I've already uh, got the cabin for the fishing hole. And I, I, I got the, the vacation reservations made before she even was able to answer me. You know, eventually she's going to recognize something. She's going to recognize that while I'm saying the right things, while I'm going through the right motions, there's no sincerity in my heart. I don't care how her day was. I won't even stick around for an answer. I don't actually want to help her with the dishes. I don't even stick around to see if she needs help. I don't really care where she wants to go for vacation. I've already made the vacation plans. This is not going to draw me near to my wife, is it? It's not. Now imagine I'm continuing to draw near to my wife and I don't have full assurance. I don't have any confidence. I don't have a sincere heart, nor do I have a confident heart. I'm constantly tiptoeing around her, hoping not to offend her, wondering if my efforts were worth my time. Everything I do, I'm paranoid because I don't know if I'm going to be able to do enough to earn her favor. There's no confidence in that. I'm never going to draw near to her if I don't have confidence that my wife loves me. If I'm constantly wondering if I'm falling out of favor with her, if I'm constantly afraid that I'm going to make her not love me anymore, if, if I'm constantly wondering if, if any of this is actually doing any good, is it even worth my time? If there's no confidence, then I'm not drawing near. We're not unifying our hearts. Likewise, if my mind and my body are not clean, then I'm certainly not drawing near to my wife. If I can't keep my mind on my wife, then I'm not drawing near unto her. You know, that is what God wants from us and our relationship with Him. If you don't have a heart of sincerity, if you're saying, hey God, I'm a Christian, but there's no Christian in you. Hey God, I love you, but your actions don't reflect love. Hey God, your word is important, but you never read it. Hey God, time with you is important, but you never pray. If there's no sincerity in your hearts, it's important to be among God's people. It's important to be among believers. But you never go to church. If there's no sincerity or you come to church with a heart that's not interested in church, not interested in the Word of God or in praising God or in worship together, then there's no sincere heart. If you're constantly wondering if your offenses are going to make you fall out of favor with God to where God doesn't love you anymore and you have to earn God's love back, there's no confidence in that. See, because the Scriptures tell us that while we were yet dead in our sins, Christ loved us, so why should we have to earn His love? We can't earn His love. We don't need to earn His love. He died on the cross for us when we were His enemies. He loved us when we were at our worst. Why would He stop loving us when we're trying to serve Him? And see, so our confidence in salvation is not in what we're doing. It is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is not in our efforts. It is in what Jesus Christ has already done for us. It is not in what we can do. It's in what Christ has done. Confidence. 
sincerity, confidence, cleansing in mind and body. Let us draw near unto God. That's the first exhortation that Paul gives based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Second exhortation in verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promise. Let us draw near. Second, let us hold fast. The word hold fast in the Greek is a word that's found only 19 times in our New Testament and it's found in some pretty unique places. It's found in John chapter 5 verse 4. You remember the man that had the infirmity for 38 years that Jesus Christ healed at the pool of Bethesda? As Jesus Christ healed him, when, when the scriptures are defi- describing this infirmity, it uses this word that the infirmity held him fast, that he was held fast in this infirmity, that he couldn't escape it, that he couldn't get away from it, that he couldn't be cured from it, that he'd had it for 38 years and he was going to have it for the rest of his life, barring a miracle, the miracle of Jesus Christ to heal him. But that was the word used to describe this illness. It's used in Acts 27.40 when you recall the shipwreck of Paul when he's traveling to Rome. And it says that when the seamen saw the land, they eagerly obtained the shoreline. They, they made a beeline for that shoreline. That's the word hold fast. They, it was as if they were reaching out for that shoreline to try to pull it closer. That's the word here. It's used in Romans 1.18 to describe unbelievers who hold fast the truth and unrighteousness, who, who refuse to to accept the truth. They are, they are holding the truth, but it's in unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they won't accept the truth. They are unbelievers. And so this word has the idea of something that is being eagerly obtained, carefully maintained. And in our case, what it is that we are eagerly obtaining and carefully maintaining, keeping close to us, never letting go, never letting go away, is the body of faith that we call biblical Christianity. We learn it, we live it, and we cling to it with all our hearts. The body of faith. Now the word here, without wavering, it says, let us hold fast, cling to the profession of our faith without wavering. It's the only time in the entire Bible this word is used. However, in classical Greek, it's used to describe something that is unswerving. It doesn't deviate to the right, Or to the left, it is complete in persistence and consistency. Think of a train. We oftentimes have trains come through Buffalo, and they're on a track. And that track goes in one direction. The conductor can't see something on the track and say, I'm going to swerve around that and turn his steering wheel, and the train goes whoop, whoop. You can't do that in a train. A train goes forward. A train is on tracks. A train has to stay on those tracks. If it's not on those tracks, there's a problem. That's the idea of this word unwavering. You're not going to the right. You're not going to the left. You are moving in one direction persistently and consistently. Take the body of faith. Take the word of God upon which our faith is founded. You read it. You learn it. You live it. You cling to it. And you keep moving forward with it. We need to draw near unto God. We need to hold fast the profession of our faith. Finally, in verse 24, and this is where our application will rest this morning, it says here, and let us consider one another 
to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Finally, let us provoke one another. Now, you say, Pastor, what? Normally, this word provoke is not a very positive word in our English context, is it? Generally speaking, the only time I ever use this word provoke is when I look at Aletheia, my little girl, or Karis, my little girl, and say, look at her provoke her sister. And when I say, look at my daughter provoke her sister, I'm not talking about her patting her on the head and saying, hey, you did a good job, keep at it, am I? I'm talking about her poking her sister or taking her sister's pacifier or taking her sister's blanket or tripping her sister or pushing her sister into a wall or closing a door on her fingers or something like that. She is provoking her sister. She's making her sister angry. We also think in the scriptures where the scriptures tell us, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And this word provoke in our culture tends to have a very negative connotation. But the word in and of itself is not negative. The word provoke simply means to encourage or to stimulate. So while we certainly should not provoke people in a negative way, we are commanded here in Hebrews to provoke one another, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another. And there's two virtues that Hebrews says we need to provoke them unto. Love and to good works. Love and to good works. Now, these are excessively broad categories, and I believe that the Holy Spirit did that on purpose. But let's talk about these for just a moment. Love. The scriptures have an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to defining love. It's 1 Corinthians 13. We often call it the chapter on charity. Let me read to you the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it prof profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long. And is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And so, charity... This idea of long-suffering, of kindness, of not being provoked unto wrath easily, of not uh, doing those things that are seeking my own pleasure, my own gain above that of others, of not rejoicing in sin, of rejoicing in truth, of bearing things, of believing things, of expecting, hoping things, of enduring things. This charity, you and I are expected as believers to provoke one another unto love. I should be as a believer and you should be as a believer stimulating one another. You should come up and you should stimulate your pastor unto love. Every once in a while, your pastor will get a little bit unloving. And he might say something from behind the pulpit about a certain group of people. And it might not be loving. Now we know that the truth can be given in love. 
It's important to speak the truth. But would you, should you see something like that, be willing to provoke me in love? Or perhaps we're standing around having a conversation and somebody says something and it's, you know, it's just not gracious. It's just not loving. It's not showing long-suffering. Or it's an action that's not showing long-suffering or kindness. It's a selfish action. Will you stimulate or encourage one another in love? How about good works? Good works is also defined for us in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6 describes good works as giving to the needs of others, both physically and financially. Titus 2 describes the young men, and he exhorts the young men, Paul does in the book of Titus, to show a pattern of good works through sound doctrine, gravity, sincerity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. 1 Peter 2 describes God good works this way, abstaining from fleshly lusts, being honest in our actions, and submitting ourselves to our authorities. These are definitions of good works found throughout the epistles. You may be able to find some more of them. And so not only are we intended to provoke ourselves to stimulate one another to live out 1 Corinthians 13 in our lives, but God intends you, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, to stimulate one another to submit to authority, to stimulate one another to have sound doctrine, to stimulate one another to be grave, to be sincere, to have sound speech, to abstain from fleshly lusts. To be honest in our actions. So we are commanded as God's people. Provoke one another to love and to good works. And how can we do that? Let me ask it another way. Think about that for a moment. How can we provoke one another to good works? How can we provoke one another to love? Let me ask it this way. How can you do it if you're never around one another? How can you do it if you are not actively committed one to another? How can we provoke one another unto love and good works if we do not assemble? If we are not active in turning our conversations Godward? And so Paul continues within the context of this third commandment in verse 25. Notice what he says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. To fulfill the expected implications of your salvation, the implications of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's the context of Hebrews 10. Finished once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He says, therefore, do three things. Draw near to God. Hold fast the profession of your faith and provoke one another unto good works. And by the way, while you're doing that, and by the way, in order to do that, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It is a necessity that you and I are regularly and actively fellowshipping with other believers. We need to be around each other. We need to be talking one to another. We need to be purposefully growing and, listen, provoking one another, stimulating one another. You know, there are plants that grow. I could throw a seed in the ground. Lots of plants grow, huh? I could throw a seed in the ground 
And I could leave that seed to grow on its own. And it will get sun. And it will get rain. And it might grow. It very well might grow. But you know, if I take that same seed and I put it in a pot where there's not going to be any weeds, and if I take that same seed and I water it, and I move it around so that I can get a little more sun during the day, when it needs a little more sun during the day, and I give it a little plant food from now and then, and when, it's, when there's a hailstorm, I bring it in, and I protect it. At the end of the season, if you were to compare that plant with the one that I threw the seed in the ground, which one's going to be larger? Which one's going to be stronger? Which one's going to be healthier? It is important in our Christian lives that we are individually growing in God. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, we see an exhortation to provoke, to stimulate one another unto love and good works. To bring each other up, to come alongside one, each, one another and, and hold each other's hands as we're going. I remember when I was in high school, I was on the high school soccer team. We, every once in a while, the, the soccer coach just got a little bit mean. Just get a little something in her mind that, you know what? I don't know if it's, not, it's that she didn't feel like coaching that day or if she just felt like being mean. But she would say, we're going to do our conditioning today. And we all knew what that meant. We knew it meant running up hills, running down hills, running everywhere. We were going to be doing some running that day. And there was about a six-mile loop. And she would start out practice, and we'd finish our stretching, and she'd say, conditioning day, go run it. No other instructions. She'd say, go run it. And I remember the first year I was on that soccer team, freshman year, and I was a little bit, I wasn't conditioned yet freshman year. A little bit chunky. Hadn't quite grown into my body yet. You know, not, not a good time to be me. And I started running that. And some of those juniors and seniors, they've been running that thing forever. They knew how it worked. They knew the hills. They knew how to pace themselves. They knew it all. But you know, there was one guy and he saw me and a couple other guys slowly struggling up those hills. And the coach timed us. She timed us to make sure that we, uh, we would pick our, our speed up and everything. And he ran back to the back of that line. And he came alongside me. And when I started slowing down, he'd say, no, man, come on, pick it up, pick it up, pick up those knees. And I'd, be, I'd start picking up those knees. And, you know, I'd start, I'd start slowing down again and say, nope, sorry, th th nope, come on, come on, pick it up, pick it up. And he'd get me going, and you know what? He got me going. And I'd pick up those knees. And he'd start, he'd start encouraging me. He'd say, come on, we're, we're halfway there now. I've seen this. I know this house is halfway. This house is halfway. Keep going. Keep pushing. Look, we've got a, every uphill has a downhill, right? Every uphill has a downhill. Keep pushing the uphill, then you get the downhill. And he would encourage me and encouraged me, and he ran alongside me. You know what? I probably could have run that six miles on my own. But I ran it a whole lot faster, and it was a whole lot better when I had someone running beside me encouraging me. Let us provoke one another to good works. Listen, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some would desire to forsake the assembling of ourselves. Some, it's not needed. Some, I don't even want to be there. That's the manner of some. But he says, don't do that. As the manner of some is. But exhorting one another and so much the more 
as you see the day approaching, as you see the world falling to pieces around you, as you see things get worse and worse and worse, you need God's people all the more. You need God's, the fellowship of God's people all the more. Now, before we conclude, let me continue quickly into verses 26 and 27. Notice what he says here. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Now, recall the context in which we're in. We are in a context that's already spoken about the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's already spoken about salvation. He's not speaking of salvation here. He's speaking about these three commands that we should build on top of salvation. Drawing near unto God, holding fast our profession, and provoking one, one, uh, one another to good works. This is why context is so important. Because if we don't have context here, then you're going to say we can lose our salvation. That's not what Paul is speaking about here. Within the context, he says, instead of... For if we, if we sin willfully, if the believer forsakes these three commands, having already received Jesus Christ to draw near to God, to hold fast our profession, to provoke one another, this believer is in danger of personal apostasy. For that believer, he says, there is no more sacrifice for sins. You can't run back to the Old Testament sacrificial system to have your sins cleansed even though you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And certainly, you don't have a clean conscience before God. You're not drawing nigh unto God. So he says, there is the danger of fiery indignation. This is not hell. May I remind you that believers will be judged just as unbelievers will be judged. May I remind you in 1 Corinthians 3, in 1 Corinthians 3 it describes that pile of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And remember what it says about that pile? That it will be tried by fire. And so that fiery indignation being described here, as best I can understand it from the interpretation of this passage, is the fire of judgment upon our works. And I believe we often spend so much time focusing upon the blessings of salvation that we forget that we believers will stand before God and give an account as well. So Paul says, lest you fall into apostasy, lest you end up in heaven and sure, you're saved yet so as by fire, you're not going to end up in hell because you're saved by Jesus Christ's blood, but you're going to stand before God and you're going to have nothing to show for your life. And you're going to watch all of those things that you did in your life burn up in the flame of God's holy judgment. To have these verses of warning come directly after verses of command reveals that they are connected. That the warning in verses 26 and 27 is directly related to the admonitions in 22, 23, 24, and 25. We need to be careful because if we're not doing what God has called us to do, we could quite possibly fall into apostasy. Now, this is why our church has been structured along two lines. We meet three times per week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday night. 
where we can learn about the Word of God so that we might be perfected to do the work of the ministry. We fellowship together in prayer in every service. We encourage you to take at least one night out of your week and invite someone over from the church or go over to their house and have personal fellowship together. Why? It's not so that we can all just become friends, though that would be a good thing. The reason why we are encouraging you to do that is so that we can actively be provoking one another unto love and good works. You're memorizing the verses. I'm memorizing the verses from Sunday morning. You come over and we have a meal and we have a good time and perhaps at the end you say, hey, let's just review those verses together. Have you been working on them? Let's review them together. You share a prayer request in the Sunday morning service. I have you over on a Thursday night. Hey, let's take a moment. How's that prayer request doing? Have you seen an answer yet? Let's take a moment and pray together for that answer. provoking one another, stimulating one another, encouraging one another unto love and to good works. 